Hello again. Thanks for joining me. We're doing another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. Gary Zacharias here. I want to take another look at a book by Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell, two uh, good writers and good thinkers. This is a book called 77 FAQs About God and the Bible and subtitle Your Toughest Questions Answered. So there are several of these that I wanted to go through. I like it because the book just has short answers. Of course, you can get more depth later, but this is good for giving people kind of a quick view of uh, possibly good answers here. And uh, so here's number four, uh, question number four, is it wrong to have doubts about God? And they start off by saying God wants us to believe in him. He wants to have us in faith go to him and believe that he has our best interest at heart. So then the question is, well, so is it wrong to have some doubts creep in? Doubts about his commandments or how we're supposed to live the Christian life? They take the story of John the Baptist and they say, you know, it seems like he wavered when he was imprisoned and things were looking pretty grim. In Matthew 11, he sends his followers and they ask Jesus this question. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, this is John the Baptist, tough man, but he got thrown in prison. He must have wondered, well, where's Jesus? Why aren't I being rescued? And he had some doubts. And then disciples of Jesus were questioning him at one time. This is in John 14. He says, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Now, I like that comment there. You can see that Jesus is not upset at him because they have some doubts. He says, well, look, look at the evidence. And that's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions, I think, is the amount of evidence that's available. So Jesus says, at least believe because of the work that you've seen me do. You physically have watched these things. So God wants our faith in him to be assured and uh, to be deepened by our convictions and, of course, to have some evidence. So he says having some uncertainties at times really isn't necessarily wrong. Sometimes we just don't have the evidence. And so seeking to know why we believe what we believe can strengthen our faith and is by no means wrong. Now see, to me, if I underlined that one and put a big star there, that's talking about apologetics, isn't it? There's theology, that's knowing what you believe, but knowing why we believe it is apologetics, having reasons for our faith. Our faith is not a blind, leap-in-the-dark kind of faith. A lot of people see any religion that way, and I would suggest other religions are that way. They're just a blind leap, or it resonates, or you just feel all warm and fuzzy about it. But Christianity says, no, there is... There's substance, there's evidence here. Go look it up, whether it's archaeological or whatever, but there is evidence for the establishment of the Christian faith. He says, you know, I say he, both Josh and uh, I don't know who wrote this chapter, Sean or both of them, but they said many of our doubts can be put aside as our faith becomes more intelligent about the evidences, knowing why we believe. So he says things like uh, Christ's resurrection, a deity, all these things, but there are also evidences, they say, about God's character and about his nature that would support our faith and remove doubt. So they give us an example of a story in Mark 9. A man comes to Jesus, asks if he could heal his son. Have mercy on us and help us if you can, he says in Mark 9. Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. The father cries out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And I tell you, I've prayed that more than once myself. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So uh, we've got, will Jesus care enough to heal my son, I guess was his key question. 
So sometimes our doubts revolve around our faith in what God will do for us, his nature, his compassion. Would he heal my child? Will he meet my material needs? Will he keep me safe? And so uh, we've got stories of where Jesus saved his disciples, uh, like when they're in the bad weather. He told his disciples, don't worry about need for food and clothing. He said, God takes care of the birds and the flowers. He'll, he'll care for you. So he wants his followers to focus on the caring, providing nature of God's heart. Yet the worries of life and all the insecurities can easily cause people to doubt, and us too. So placing our focus on the providing and protecting nature of God's heart allows us to follow Peter's admonition. I think this is a powerful one in 1 Peter 5, 7. Josh and Sean talk about this one. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. And they end the chapter talking about we don't know the future, and we don't know our own lives. And of course we're going to question how things turn out, but if we think about our evidences for the truth of what the Gospels talk about and our knowledge or evidence of the caring heart that God has, then that can remove a lot of our doubts. So I thought that was a good answer. Let me move ahead. Let's look at another one here. What about number eight? What's the moral law argument for God's existence? So they talk about uh, the um, start of the universe. That's the cosmological argument. How, why are things here? Well, probably because of God. They talk about the design argument. Why are things so perfectly designed for life? Again, best, best answer is God. But there's also a third argument that is really powerful. It's the moral law argument. And they point out that every human culture has had a moral law. They all do. And it's surprising how similar these laws are. C.S. Lewis points that out, and I've got a list of them uh, in a file folder. If you're ever interested, email me, gary.zacharias at gmail.com. I'll send you that list. So no matter how widely separated these societies are by either time or geography or their culture or religious beliefs, whether you're looking at the Code of Hammurabi, the Chinese Tao, the Christian New Testament, they differ in details and emphasis, but not in essence. So here's their example. Some societies allow individuals to kill, to avenge a wrong, while others say that all execution is what the state is allowed to do, but not individuals. Some societies allow freedom in premarital sexual relationships, or they permit men to take more than one wife, while others forbid that behavior, but they all have rules that says you can't kill others anytime you want for any reason you want, and they don't have uh, any rules that say you can just have sex with anybody you want. So they, there are laws, and there there are moral laws out there. And they said sometimes you do find things like in Hitler's Germany or in some Asian countries when they were killing female babies, but they said usually that's pretty short-lived because society finally gets outraged enough or another society gets outraged enough and it stops that behavior. But there seems to be a basic sense of morality wherever humans are and they live together. So key question they bring up, how do you explain a moral code that's present in all societies? This sense of morality, we, we all have an innate sense of right and wrong. Why should this exist at all? In other words, if you don't have a higher source, God, what, what accounts for that moral sense that's common to the entire human race through all history? Where else could morals come from? Well, blind chance, like evolution? Then it's just a trick of nature. It follows then that there's no objective basis, so go ahead and do whatever you want to do. 
Um, if there's no objective right and wrong, do whatever feels good. They said, but are you willing to pay that price? There's a better explanation. An objective, universal, and constant standard of truth and morality points to what? An existence of a personal and moral God. And they mentioned a book by uh, Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov. Now here's what Dostoevsky said in that book. If there's no immortality of the soul, there can be no virtue, and therefore everything is permissible. Wow, that's powerful. So if you don't have God as the foundation of morality, then guess what? Anything goes. I like it, though. They point out that an atheist or a non-believer could be actually act more moral than a believer, but they don't have a foundation for arguing why something is right or wrong. If God doesn't exist, they said we lose the right to judge the Nazis and anybody else that we disagree with morally. They have their way of doing something. We have our way. Who's to say? The Nazis thought they were right. We think they were wrong. But if you don't have a higher law, who gets to decide moral truth? Or there's a famous essay called uh, Says Who. And I can send you that sometime because that's really good too. It was uh, written by a Duke law professor. So if there's no greater source above human beings, then this idea of morality is just an illusion. But, key here, huh? But if God exists, then you have a ground for objective morality. Why should we be truthful? God is true. Why should we do loving acts? Because God is love. So morality stems from the character and nature of God, and it's binding on all of us. Well, some people say, yeah, but we can have morality uh, independent of God. We don't need God to be good or to be evil. But how do you find define good or evil if there's not some kind of moral standard? Evil has always been understood as perverting something that's good. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said that to complain that a stick is bent makes sense only in the light of the concept of straight. So there can be evil only if there's first good. But if there's no God, what's good? We all figure it out for ourselves. Good is just a relative term. Whatever we want to do at that moment, well, we don't believe that. So they end this chapter by pointing out there's a simple argument that they're making here. If objective moral values exist, God must exist. Number two, objective moral values do exist. Number three, what's the conclusion? Therefore, God must exist. All right, so I thought that was a good chapter. How about one more? Um, <laughs> here's one you hear a lot of, which is uh, always uh, cracked me up because it seemed like there's a, a pretty simple answer, but here we go. So question number 10, if God caused everything, then who or what caused God? Aha, says the atheist. So who or what caused God? Everything that exists has to have a beginning. So when did God begin? What caused him to begin? So here's the three uh, first cause arguments for the existence of God. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Guess what? Therefore, you can guess this one, the universe has a cause. But notice, that argument doesn't say everything that exists needs a cause. It says everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. So, here's a quick answer. Who or what caused God? What's the answer? Nothing. God is eternal. He has life without beginning or end. There was never a moment that he didn't exist. And because he's always existed, he doesn't need a cause. That's the definition of God, a being that is self-existent. If he could be caused to exist, then he wouldn't be God. 
So we only ask what caused things that can in principle be caused, like chairs and books and computers. But God, since he's uncaused, is not the kind of entity that can be caused. So actually, when you say what caused God, that's a pretty meaningless statement. Now, of course, it's really hard for us to figure that kind of stuff out. But they point out, think of this, if the world had never been created, would it still be true that one plus one equals two? Oh, okay, so apparently mathematical truths and the laws of logic have always existed and are uncaused. That's kind of an interesting way to think about it. So our minds can't fathom how he's existed, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, that knocks me over. I can't figure that out. But just because our minds can't fathom how he's existed, that doesn't mean it's illogical to believe that it's so. We naturally sense that something outside the universe had to cause it to come into existence. What's the most reasonable explanation? The creator God. So, as Isaiah says, have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God. Yeah, amen to that. I'm glad he is. Well, I'll stop at that point, and uh, we'll, we'll cover some more of these later. I like these a lot. 77 FAQs about God and the Bible. Facts about God and the Bible. All right, so that's uh, McDowell's. You can't go wrong with any of their books. Thanks, and uh, have a good day.